Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled, What's the Consensus on Cardiorenal Protection for CKD in T2D, is provided by Medtelligence. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Achieving optimal outcomes when treating patients with chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes remains challenging with a multidisciplinary approach and multiple medications required to prevent progressive decline in renal function and cardiovascular events. So what are the latest clinical trials and guidelines telling us on how to best treat these patients to improve outcomes? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Tessa Lopsher, a family physician and diabetes specialist in Canada. And I am Dr. George Bacris, a nephrologist, clinical trialist, and the professor of medicine at the University of Chicago of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm Dr. Mikhail Kasibarat, cardiologist at St. Luke's Miramarpa Heart Institute in Kansas City. So our first topic is going to look at the clinical impact of latest clinical trials in a patient with type 2 diabetes identified with established CKD. George, will you start us off by describing a clinical case of a patient with type 2 diabetes and established CKD and tell us how recent clinical trials have impacted our therapeutic choices and how this data supports the updates to clinical practice guidelines on CKD and diabetes. So this is a 52-year-old female with a 12-year history of diabetes and a 15-year history of hypertension, and she presents to you for management of both conditions. Her blood pressure is 138 over 86, heart rate's 86, and her physical exam is really unremarkable. Her labs include a hemoglobin A1C of 7.6, her potassium is fine with a K of 4.3, and her estimated GFR is 47. Her urine albumin creatinine excretion is 176 milligrams per gram. Her current meds include telmisartan 80 a day, amlodipine 5 a day, metformin one gram in the morning and 500 milligrams in the evening, the SGLT2 inhibitor canagliflozin 100 milligrams a day, and she's on a statin, a vitorvastatin 40 milligrams a day for elevated cholesterols in the past. And she's been on these medications for the last six months when the labs were drawn. So that's what you're seeing. If you look at the current recommendations based on the data from the clinical trials, she is still not maximized because while she's on the maximal dose of an ARB and she is on an SGLT2, we now know that the third pillar of therapy, if you will, here is to add a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, namely finerenone, based on Two very large trials, one renal, one cardiovascular. The fidelity analysis pulls the two together. And so you've got over 13,000 patients demonstrating that the finerenone added to the ARB or ACE inhibitor provides additional protection. And the SGLT2 is further stimulating benefit across the board. So we really have three pillars of therapy taking a page out of the heart failure model for supporting the slowing of diabetic kidney disease progression and reducing cardiovascular events. 
Well, that sounds fairly good, George. I, I would just add from my standpoint is that, you know, this patient has pretty significant degree of kidney dysfunction, right? So essentially bordering on a CKD stage 3B with persistent uh, albuminuria, which is still in the microalbuminuria category, but really bordering now on macroalbuminuria. It's getting close to 250 milligrams per gram, even though it's currently below that, despite the fact the patient is getting reasonably good, I would, you know, one could say, you know, until recently, state-of-the-art therapy for diabetes-related CKD with albuminuria, which is a combination of angiotensin receptor blocker and a SGLT2 inhibitor. And the thing to point out here is that we're kind of concentrating on the kidney outcomes here. But of course, because the patient's significant CKD, diabetes, and persistent albuminuria, this patient is also at risk for cardiovascular events as well. And we know that, you know, especially from Figaro trial, but really from combination of Fidel and Figaro, that there is not just a reduction in progression of kidney disease, but also a significant reduction in the risk of composite of cardiovascular events driven in large part by hospitalizations for heart failure. There are actually lots of different reasons to consider intensification of therapy in a patient like this, in part because of the risk of kidney disease progression. So, Mikhail, you made some very important points that I want to emphasize. Number one, microalbuminuria or high albuminuria, which is what this person has, is a risk marker for heart failure. And there's a very nice review in Jack, just published last month, that I recommend all of the listeners read. So clearly there's room to play with, and clearly there's room to go down. So that's number one. I might add, and I didn't mention this earlier, but when we started therapy or when this person started therapy, her albumin creatinine ratio was in the neighborhood of 700. So there's definitely been improvement, but very clearly, as we now know, when you add finerenone to this mix, you can almost normalize albuminuria. And I have cases in my own office where we've reduced albuminuria by 85% with triple therapy. That is an important marker. If you're not measuring it, you need to measure it because otherwise you really don't know the true state of the kidney function. And as Dr. Grossoboro points out, clearly it is a marker of heart failure. And so you're getting the a twofer here. You're adding one drug, but you're getting renal and cardiovascular benefits. So clearly we have room to go in terms of doing that. So there is a reason to do it here. And the indication, because a lot of clinicians ask me this, well, how do I know when to add finerenone or not? The answer is, if you have albuminuria at any level, when you have this setting, you need to add finerenone. It's as simple as that. So thanks very much, George and Mikhail. That was really interesting. And as a family physician, diabetes specialist, one of the biggest fears I see of people living with diabetes is end-stage kidney disease and dialysis. Previously, we didn't have many options to prevent this, but the latest data using non-steroidal MRAs has changed the landscape completely. And I would encourage all primary care providers and generalists to review the ADA, Cadigo consensus recommendations. And if you're short on time, there is a one-page summary of the top 10 takeaways 
from the Cadigo 2022 CPG on diabetes and CKD. It's really worth reading. So for our second topic, we're going to move on to further discussion of the ADA Cadigo consensus document and other guidelines and the implications to patients with type 2 diabetes and early onset CKD, so stages one and two. And I'll turn to Mikhail for this. Would you mind sharing a case of a patient with type 2 diabetes and early CKD and discuss how the current guidelines influence your treatment approach? And can you comment on how this approach differs from the one George presented in terms of the CKD status of the two patients? Thanks for this. And this is actually very timely because uh, this patient that we just evaluated recently in our cardiometabolic center, the 50-year-old gentleman who has a 10-year history of type 2 diabetes and a number of kind of multi-morbid conditions, if you will, including significant obesity with a BMI of 42, hypertension, coronary disease with a remote history of percutaneous intervention, currently asymptomatic from coronary disease standpoint, as well as symptomatic heart failure with preserved ejection fraction with neurocardiac association class two level symptoms, who's presenting for management of heart failure. But of course, there are all these altimorbidities kind of on the background. The current medications include low-dose aspirin, high-intensity statin, 100 milligrams of losartan daily, amlodipine, um, 5 milligrams daily, furosemide, 40 milligrams daily, and empagliflozin. 10 milligrams daily, and a patient's also on somatolatide, 2 milligrams once a week for management of type 2 diabetes. Patient's blood pressure is 123 over 75, and the exam pressed is unremarkable. And the laboratory evaluation reveals a well-controlled hemoglobin A1C of 6.2%, a well-controlled LDL cholesterol of 40 milligrams per deciliter, and EGFR of 79, but urine albumin creatinine ratio of 874. So here is a patient who is receiving quite well-constructed regimen of medications for a number of comorbidities and has what appears to be a reassuring kidney function with EGFR of 79. But despite the fact that this patient is on high-dose angiotensin receptor blocker as well as an SGLT2 inhibitor, and also I should add a, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which certainly being evaluated currently in clinical trials for potential role in prevention of kidney disease progression. But we know also in a number of trials of patients with type 2 diabetes have been shown to reduce albuminuria. So despite all of that, uh, the patient still has a markedly elevated urine albumin creatinine ratio of over 800. And, uh, and I think it's an important case for similar reasons that we discussed before in case one, which is this degree of albuminuria is a high-risk marker not just for kidney disease progression, but also cardiovascular events, such as both atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events and especially heart failure. And this patient already has heart failure. The history of heart failure was preserved ejection fraction, but certainly that level of urine albumin creatinine ratio puts the patient at higher risk for recurrent heart failure hospitalizations and adverse heart failure events. But importantly here, you have a patient that's a prime candidate for additional risk-reducing strategies and this EGFR of 79 should not fool you because the rate of decline in somebody with urine albumin creatinine ratio that's persistently high like this, and I suspect, even though we don't know for sure, but I suspect in this particular case, the urine albumin creatinine ratio was probably much, much higher before the patient was initiated on ARB and SGLT2 inhibitor and possibly 
uh, also with some role here from the JLP1 receptor agonist and reducing alpha as well. So this is somebody with undoubtedly significant diabetes-related nephropathy and marked albuminuria. But again, this kind of what we see sometimes is a sense of complacency because EGFR is still okay. But we know if you look at it epidemiologically, this patient's kidney function is likely to decline quite precipitously over the next few years. And we have an opportunity to do something in addition to reduce the risk. And this is a patient at very high absolute risk of kidney function decline as well as cardiovascular events. So once again, if you look at the data from Figaro, it's very clear that phenarinone in that patient population can reduce the risk of cardiovascular events, including heart failure hospitalizations in particular, as well as kidney disease progression. And it's a real opportunity here to intervene before the kidney function gets worse. I think if you also look at the professional practice guidelines, professional organization recommendations, including ADA standards of care and KDGO, a patient like that would be recommended to have additional risk-reducing strategies for prevention of kidney disease progression. And since the patient's already on very good medical therapy with combination of ARB and apagliflozin, and also with a GLP-1 receptor agonist on board, consideration for non-sterile MRA is clearly something that should be considered very strongly here. So I think it's very illustrative of things that happen commonly in practice where we see patients with persistent albuminuria despite what we consider to be state-of-the-art medical therapy, and that it's very important not to be complacent just because EGFR is preserved. So I maybe wanted to ask George your opinion on whether you agree with which, with, with some of the things I just summarized on whether that patient is somebody that should be considered for additional risk-reducing strategies here. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Tessa Lapsha, and with me today are Dr. George Bakris and Dr. Mikhail Kosoborod. We're discussing recently updated clinical practice guidelines and how best to address the use of non-steroidal MRAs in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. I want to fully applaud you because this was an excellent therapeutic approach. I also want to applaud you and I want the audience to be aware that you measured albuminuria. You would have totally missed the boat, as you yourself pointed out, had you not measured that. I want to urge the audience to get a copy of the KDGO heat map, which is published in many places and it's on the kidney.org website, and Xerox it, put it in your exam rooms, and when the patient comes in, you show them where they are on the heat map. If you pull out the heat map in this person, guess what? They're not going to be in red, but they're going to be in orange. That's not good. And the patient will figure out it's not good. And you need to then explain to them what you're going to do. It's very important that they understand what their level of kidney function is so they can help you. And believe me, I've seen it. We haven't published this, but I've seen it in, in my practice. It, it will improve adherence dramatically. So it's a big deal, and I recommend to do it. Now, to the practical points, I would issue two points here of, of importance. One is fully agree with Mikhail, and here you can start with 20 milligrams. You don't need to mess around with 10. You can start with 20 milligrams of phenarinone, which is what we did in the trials in people at this level of GFR. And you want to achieve 20 milligrams, not 10. You start with 10 if the GFR is low. But if the GFR is above 60, you start with 20. And you monitor the potassium in about a month. 
And if you have a problem, fine, you won't in this person because GFR is the key determining factor for whether you're going to have a problem with potassium or not. Thank you, both George and Mikhail. I mean, Mikhail, that was a really great case, someone we see commonly in primary care and generalist care. And I'd just like to add from a diabetes point of view, I appreciate the fact that phenerenone does not affect glucose levels. So there is no increased risk in this particular patient of hypoglycemia, and there's no need to adjust other glucose-lowering medications, because we certainly encounter this with the addition of SGLT2s. And in Canada, where I practice, I've seen some nephrologists and cardiologists reluctant to start SGLT2s because of uncertainty on how to adjust insulin in patients with good glycemic control. So our final section is, and third topic is polypharmacy, and probably all aware these patients are on multiple medications, and what to do when adding a non-steroidal MRA. So George, I'll start with you. How do you approach polypharmacy, and what do you do to minimize the adverse drug side effects? I personally have been, and a group of us have been big proponents of single pill combination therapy. And we use this in the blood pressure area, and we have a lot of things to pick from that have all been proven in outcome trials to be beneficial. And in a person like this, I absolutely would go with a single pill combination where you can use, if you want, a diuretic, since their GFR is good, along with an ARB at maximal dose, and that will reduce your pill count by one. There are combinations in the diabetes fields. So you can use those if you want. Anything you can do to reduce the pill count counts. But the problem is there are, believe it or not, there are people working on combinations now with an SGLT2 and finerenone. And there's at least two different companies that are working on this. And the hope is that this will be available within the next two years. But it's still a little early in the game. But that would be another way to approach this. One thing I have to say, and we haven't talked about this, but it's very important. Under no circumstances should you start all of these drugs together. In other words, venerinone, an SGLT2, an ARB, and give them all at once. Because if you do, you're going to be horrified because the creatinine is going to go up significantly, especially if they're on diuretics. And then you're going to think you've, to you've caused toxicity. The way to do this is to slowly bring them in. And so that within six weeks to two months, they're on all the therapies. Here are the cases we gave you. They're already on the therapies. You can simply add, not a problem. But if you're starting fresh from scratch, you start with the ARB to get the blood pressure control. And then if glucose is an issue, you can use the SGLT2. If it's not an issue, you can use finerenone. That doesn't mean you forgot about the SGLT2 or finerenone. You add it later. How much later? you got to give the kidney a chance to reacclimate. Usually about two weeks does it. And so by six weeks, you've paced yourself in there. Expect the GFR to drop a little bit. It's normal. You can get up to 25% reduction in GFR, and you still have positive outcomes. Thank you. That's really important guidance for our listeners. Mikhail, do you have anything to add? You know, just a couple of things to what George said, which is, I mean, I think... When you manage individuals, patients that have multimorbidity, like some of the cases that we've discussed, 
heart failure, kidney disease, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, and so on, it's very important to focus on what I would call high-value interventions. And what I mean by high-value interventions are those where you address more than one issue with one treatment, right? And I think this is where medications like SGLT2 inhibitors, non-steroidal MRAs, GLP-1 receptor agonists, especially shine because they really address multiple issues that the patient has. And you're really kind of hitting multiple problems with those interventions. You're not just treating the kidney disease, you're also treating cardiovascular disease. With SGLT2 inhibitors, for example, you're addressing CKD, heart failure, and diabetes. With scenario non-steroidal MRAs, you're addressing CKD and the risk for heart failure is a heart failure progression or potentially incident heart failure, as we've seen in the Cinerinone di- diabetes-related kidney disease program with Fidelity Figure and Fidelity. GLP-1 receptor agonists, of course, are multifaceted agents that can provide better glycemic control, weight loss, cardiovascular benefits from atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease standpoint, and so on. So, you know, these high-value interventions really matter. And then, you know, if you explain that to the patient and you're trying to, you know, you, you try to kind of highlight the fact that you're trying to, you know, kind of address multiple issues with these interventions that will have really a, a facet of multifaceted improvements, not just on one issue, but on multiple issues, they do, it does resonate with them. And the, the other thing that I do frequently is take very careful look at patient's medication list and carefully assess whether there are any interventions, any treatments that the patient is on that provide very little value or may in fact be harmful in some ways. I mean, that's not uncommon. Yeah, one great example is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. You know, sometimes patients have to be on them because they're in a lot of pain due to arthritis or other issues, but I can't tell you how frequently it is that I see NSAIDs on the list and I ask the patient why, what they're taking the NSAIDs for and to say, oh, well, I had you know, pain due to arthritis, you know, a year ago. Well, it's, are you still having pain? No. Have you tried to reduce the dose of medication and maybe win yourself off of it? No, I haven't tried that. Well, how about we try and see what happens? And if you're no longer having a pain problem, uh, maybe you don't need to be on these medications that uh, otherwise health and pain control provide very little, if any, value. And in fact, could potentially be harmful from a cardiovascular and kidney standpoint. And there are many other examples like that. So I think identifying high-value interventions and trying to peel away things that are of low value or may even be harmful is, is I think, a worthwhile approach in complex patients like this. So both all really good points. And I think a key part of this adherence issue is patient education. And what I found is when patients understand why they're taking their medicines, as both George and Mikhail have emphasized, it makes a big difference. And we are in a unique place now, but it does take medications and multiple combinations to prevent CKD in these cardiovascular events. Well, this has been an interesting and informative conversation. But before we wrap up, George and Mikhail, do you have any take-home messages that you would like to share with our audience today? I think the big take-home message for me is we now have taken from the cardiologists dealing with heart failure, pillars of therapy. That concept now can be applied to prevention or slowing of kidney disease progression, certainly in diabetes, with the non-steroidal MRAs along with the SGLT2s and the ARBs. And I think 
using those drugs well and wisely, as we've talked about, will really make a dent in the progression of kidney disease progression. That and patient education, so they can help you and using the KDGO heat map as part of that education so that they know exactly what's going on. And from my standpoint, I think, especially for my cardiology colleagues, but really anyone that's managing these patients with multimorbidity uh, and diabetes-related kidney disease, it's really, really important to measure albuminuria, as we've discussed before. Otherwise, you actually miss a lot of patients that could benefit from additional risk reduction, could be at risk for both cardiovascular events and kidney events. It's important to keep in mind that this is a very inexpensive test that's widely available all over the world. It's easy to get, and it can give you and gives you really good prognostic information, not just about the risk of worsening kidney function over time, but also risk of cardiovascular events, both ASCVD events and heart failure events. And the second take home point to kind of reemphasize what George just said: focus on high value interventions and try to look carefully at the medication list and peel away the medications that may be unnecessary or even harmful. And uh, that can really help kind of get the best outcomes for the patients, especially complex patients such as those we reviewed. You heard it here. A cardiologist is telling you to measure the kidney product. Do it. Thank you, George, for emphasizing that. And my final take home is just echoing what George said. And for those of you who are not familiar with KDGO, this is the KDGO heat map. You can download it from the internet. And I found it really has changed my practice in terms of counseling patients and advocating for combination and multiple medications in diabetes and CKD. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. So I'd like to thank our audience for listening. And a big thank you to Dr. George Bakris and Dr. Mikhail Kosobarad for joining me and sharing your valuable insights and expertise. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash medtelligence. Thank you for listening.